If you had a Bible or an app or some kind of reading device, you can follow along. We're going to read Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. This will be our launching pad for uh, our study this morning. So once you go ahead and open up, read on the screen if that makes you feel comfortable. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all of you as servants, you who fear Him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, for the, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I want to begin with just a simple phrase. It's going to be a refrain for the message today is just don't do that. Don't do that. I don't know if your RA says that to you a lot at your, in your dormitory. Don't do that. Uh, as a parent, I've learned how to say that phrase often to my children. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. In this particular passage, the angel says to John, don't do that. You must not do that, John. The great news of God's victory has been proclaimed. He's awestruck by God's victory. The marriage of the Lamb is coming. And he bows down, he worships the angel, he worships the messenger, and he says, don't do that. Worship God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't embrace the ethic of Babylon. Don't do that. Don't fall for worship of the the created thing and miss the creator himself. Don't do that. You see, Babylon will be destroyed. Babylon is going to be destroyed. That's the message of Revelation 15 to 19. The Babylon will be destroyed. You read that in chapter 15. It's the final judgment of God. The last, all right, these, these, these amazing seven angels, the seven plagues, bring the last for within the wrath of God is finished. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, the angels will proclaim. She's fallen. The smoke we read in the text just now will go up forever and ever. In chapter 18, verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and who lived luxuriously with her 
will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Babylon will be destroyed, for sure. There's no doubt about that. But Babylon is open for business right now. And she has a deal for you. When Babylon is destroyed, what will happen is the merchants of the earth will weep and they'll mourn over her. Says no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of, of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, that is, human souls themselves. This is not a list that includes iPhones and cars, and, but it, it does include all those things, all those things of the world. You see, the ethic of Babylon can be defined in a simple word, and the word is more. This is the, this is the ethic of Babylon. The ethic of Babylon is more. Babylon is wanting to sell you more. And when Babylon's destroyed, the merchants who've been selling more will weep because more is no more. See, I think there's a sick joke in the fallen world that you were made with a longing for more, but more never satisfies. Listen, I, I counsel a lot of broken people in my ministry life, and here's what I've discovered. That more of this broken world is never going to fix your broken life. More of the broken things of this world will never fix your broken story. But Babylon is pleased to sedate you with more. Babylon's pleased to have you hooked on more, to have you longing for more, to have you wanting more. See, the ethic of Babylon is not merely a, the, the opposite of the ethic of Jesus. It's opposed to the ethic of Jesus. Which is why when the whore sits on her mighty beast and she sips on the blood of God's servants, of God's saints, she stands in opposition to what Christ stands for. So Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, let him deny. Disciples should deny themselves, take up the cross and follow me. So Jesus says, deny yourself. But the whore of Babylon says, deny yourself nothing. They're diametrically opposed ethics. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. The whore of Babylon says, seek first your kingdom. Jesus says, serve. The whore of Babylon says, be served. Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Babylon is selling more, and the addiction to more is what's killing the world. When Paul looks back at Adam and says, death came through Adam, what he's pointing to is Adam was blessed with God in his presence. Adam was blessed, was blessed with the, the garden and its fruit. But Satan tempted him with more. It was, it was more. It was sowing seeds of dissatisfaction in God himself, creating a longing within Adam and Eve for more is what led us down this path that we are on today. Sin is letting your desires terminate on the gift rather than the giver. That's what sin is. It's looking at the things of the world and saying the things of the world is what it's really about and not about the God who's, who gives every good and perfect gift. 
So what's the antidote to more? Is the antidote to more less? It can't be just less. That can't be it. That can't just be the antidote to more. See, the antidote to more is enough. Enough is the antidote to more. The whore in her luxurious living is selling this luxurious lifestyle. Sexual immorality is sure the part of her, of her, of her MO, but sexual immorality is also a metaphor for serving and worshiping idols and the created rather than the creator. She is tempting you and enticing you to long for more of this created world and to miss the creator who gives every good and perfect gift. So how much is enough? When Jesus says, I tell you that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, the rich pers- than a rich person to the kingdom of God, what he's saying is rich people are spiritually at risk. Rich people are spiritually at risk. In fact, I think people who are in extreme poverty and who are extreme prosperity are equally at risk. I recently traveled with Greg Nettle to uh, visit uh, 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 some small towns in Brazil to think about some church planting there. Greg wrote a book called Small Matters. And in the book, this is what, the, what, what, what Greg wrote. We see poverty and prosperity as similar problems. Though the circumstances of a child in poverty are different from those of a child in prosperity, they are both equally at risk. One child has too little, one child has too much. One child is in danger of forgetting about God because she doesn't have enough. One child is in danger of forgetting about God because she has more than enough. If you can imagine a scale, on one side of the scale is poverty, and one side is a, sort of the, the continuum, I guess you could say, is, is prosperity. Somewhere between prosperity and poverty is enough. But how, how do you know what enough is? Because enough is very hard to, to locate in your mind. It's very hard to, to discern what enough is. But if you put it in this language, you, you kind of know what less than enough is. That's easy to identify. Because you can look all around you and see people in your own city who have less than enough. More than enough is easy to identify. Because you can identify even in your own life, the lives of your friends, who has more than enough. You might even just do the evaluation right now in your own life. Do I have more than enough or less than enough? Where, where am I on the continuum? Uh, do I have, do I have a little bit more than enough or a little bit less than enough? Because see, here's, here's God's objective for you is He wants those of us who have more than enough to reach those who have less than enough. And somehow when those who are, have more than enough start serving those who have less than enough, those who have less than enough start serving those who have more than enough by bringing them closer to enough. And there's a prophetic voice missing in the church today. And the prophetic voice that's missing in the church today is the prophetic voice that's asking the question, how much is enough? Nobody wants to ask that question. The whore of Babylon certainly doesn't want you to ask that question. The whore of Babylon wants you to be longing for more, wanting more, hungry for more. I think it's entirely possible to be more in love with the things of God than God himself. I know because I, I, I have been that person. Many years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church in Florida. And we had a, a big event, a, a big, I mean, a big event, a big draw event. We had a magician. He made a bowling ball disappear. It was pretty cool. Uh, we had like this uh, really great Christian band come and play. In fact, we sold out the venue. 
We had kids in the parking lot waiting to get in. We passed out response cards, uh, the bowling ball disappearing magician, right? He gave an altar call. Kids filled out response cards. And I was sitting in the office. I was looking through the response cards, seeing all these kids who had accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And my only thought in that meeting, that moment was, I mean, I can't wait to boast about this at staff meeting and talk about how great I was and how great this event was and how dynamic the student ministry is. And the Holy Spirit of God whispered in my mind. Now, I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt on, but I do believe God speaks. And he spoke to me. He said, could you have done all this without me? And at that moment, it was really clear to me. I hadn't prayed about that event. I hadn't fasted over that event. I hadn't talked to God about that event. I had a big enough credit card with enough momentum in ministry to make something happen. But it wasn't. It wasn't done to, for God's glory in the service of others, I can tell you that much. About that same time, I was reading a book called God is the Gospel by John Piper, and I read a question that broke my heart. The question of the book is this. The critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked... And all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? In a moment of shame, I'll just tell you in honesty, when I first read that question the very first time, reading that book, I said yes, in my heart. It was immediately confronted with the Holy Spirit of God. But, but it was like, yes, I, I would be satisfied with all those things. That's, all, that's what I want. I want peace and tranquility and happiness. All the pain and suffering in the world to go away. And that's what I've been after my whole life. But it wasn't Jesus. It's possible to be a Christian materialist. It's possible to work in the church. And to long for the things of God with such a, with such a longing that you miss, you miss God Himself. If you find more joy in the stuff of this world than you do in the presence of Christ, then you belong to the whore of Babylon. She's your dealer. I've had to wrestle with this idea that the church is not an event you go to, but a family you belong to, because I feel the pressure as a pastor. People want more. And they want more at church. Sometimes they want more. They want more entertainment. They want, they want soft, uh, chewable messages. They don't want to be called to living. That's enough kind of living. They don't want that. I think one of the greatest temptations of the American past was to give up on the familial vision of Jesus and to just offer awful, awful, awful services. The world is happy for you to go and become a pastor that is a d- dispenser of goods and services. They're happy for you to be that. And there's a consumer culture in America that's happy to come to church and consume. 
And you can. You can offer Christian entertainment. And you can offer, you can offer Christian goods. You can offer all the more that the world wants. And they will feast on the more. But if you don't give them Jesus and His presence, then you're failing, my friends. And the whore of Babylon has her hooks in you. Listen, if Babylon fails to seduce you, she will try to consume you. When we first decided to plant a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it wasn't my uh, deepest desire to, to, to move from the beach to the desert. Uh, wasn't, wasn't dreaming about that at night. Wasn't my vision for my life to move from... We lived in Boca Raton on the beach for a period of time. Then we moved to Fort Lauderdale. But still, we spent a lot of time at the beach. I had a surfboard. I mean, we, we went, I went scuba diving. My parents had a boat. We went on the boat in the ocean a lot. You know, in, in New Mexico, you've got, uh, you've got all beach, no ocean. It's just like a, little, just a lot of sand everywhere. Uh, it's, everything's brown. Um, and it, it, it wasn't like the place that I wanted to go. Um, I was eating a double, I was eating a double stack sandwich from Wendy's when I got the call from God to go to plant a church in New Mexico. I haven't had one since. Uh, I don't, I don't like being called like that. I was sitting on the volcanoes looking over the city and, and, and I was praying over the city and, and I, and I do mean, I feel like the Holy Spirit just led me to Daniel nine and 10 and I was reading through looking at how there's this prayer, Daniel, it needs to be answered, but Gabriel's preoccupied fighting the prince of Persia. Michael comes, relieves the battle. Gabriel come, comes to answer the prayer. And I felt like the Holy Spirit of God said, you know, there's an evil, there's an evil angel over Albuquerque that has a foothold here. And, and I've, I've seen that, I've seen that foothold. You know, earlier in Revelation, there's a, war, there's a warning to the church of Smyrna. That the enemy is going to throw some in prison. And he, he encourages them. He says, be faithful to death. That the enemy has the power to imprison. And the power to even sentence you to death. In fact, the whore Babylon sipping on the blood of the, the martyrs. I don't like that the enemy has power. I don't, I don't like the, the, the spiritual battle that I face. You know, I, I experienced this kind of darkness in our community. I mean, I've met with young men who have heard dark voices. I've met with young women who've par- whose parents have sold them into sex slavery. Uh, I've recently was meeting with a young gal whose earliest memory is paralyzing as of a man choking her and raping her at four years old. Like, I hate, I hate the evil of Babylon. There was a a, a, a a greeter that greeted me at church a few months ago. I get to the I get to the church on Sunday mornings around five a.m. He was standing in the doorway of our church at five a.m. A bald guy, very menacing looking, and he's just cursing at me, just cursing at me, giving me the bird, yelling expletives, and I pick up my phone and put it in my ear. And I sat in the car, and he's like looking at me. And he starts walking away, and I just immediately feel like this is not what you think it is. This is a spiritual thing. And I start praying this person away. And they start kind of walking away and fading away. And I just felt like the enemy was just saying, hey, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. I see what you're doing. Man, I, hate, I hate that the enemy has power in this world. I hate that he's called the prince of the power of the air. I hate that. But for those who Babylon fails to seduce with wealth, she will try to rule with fear.
And Jesus reminds us in this world you're going to have troubles, but take heart of overcome the world. You have to remember that sometimes, because sometimes it doesn't feel like Jesus has overcome the world. Sometimes the tribulation and the struggles in Babylon are so severe and so intense because the enemy hates you. Babylon hates you. She hates that you want, you're asking questions like, what's enough? How can I spend my life in such a way that I love God and love my neighbor? How do I not get seduced by, by her, by her drama and by her story? How do I, how do I fall in love with God and his mission? And he hates you when you start living that way. He hates you. Babylon's power will be stuffed out in a moment. I'm taking heart in that. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. That great city, clothed with linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with all of her luxuries, in a single hour be laid waste. I'm ready for Babylon to be judged. I'm just ready for it. It's been one of the toughest seasons of my ministry life over the last few months because one of my, one of my dear friends, a missionary at our church, I mean, he, it really, honestly, uh, Ryan showed up on the very first Sunday at New City, very first Sunday we ever had. He showed up. Uh, it was uh, really just starting to come to life spiritually. Uh, was decided he wanted to go back to school. He was a C-130 pilot in the Air Force. Became a chaplain, started preaching some at our church, became somebody I was mentoring, spent a lot of time with. He and his family eventually felt a call to go to Dominican Republic to do uh, work in the DR. So they went to the DR to do some work, and they recently came back because of some health issues. But they, they're just the kind of people that couldn't help themselves. They had to serve. They just had to be serving. And so coming back to the States, living in Albuquerque wasn't enough for them. So we have an orphanage we support in, in Juarez, which is just a few hours south. So they said, we're going to go down to Juarez on the weekends and do some work and care for the poor there. And so they're down in Juarez, and Ryan got sick. They got rushed to the hospital over the border to El Paso. Sunday night, he's admitted... Monday, they have surgery, move a portion of his intestine. On Tuesday afternoon, or Tuesday morning, they diagnose him with a leukemia. Thursday morning, I'm on the phone with his wife, Sandy, and I said, do you want me to come down? I'll come down. She said, I think he's going to make it. We talked at 10 a.m. at 1230, he passed away. And I drove down, and I wept with Sandy all night long. We wept to the morning. We drove back because their kids were at home in Albuquerque. Both adopted, one from Russia, one from Korea, both boys at eight and six. And the whole way, we kept getting closer and closer to the house. We kept getting closer and closer to the inevitable, inevitable having to tell the boys that their dad was no longer coming home. And we sat in their living room and we told the boys their dad had passed away and we wept and we cried. I hate Babylon. I do. I hate death. And I hate all the things that is killing us. And I think like the rest of the created world, I am experiencing this longing for God to judge. 
I want him to judge it. I want him, I want him to come as a good, perfect, and righteous judge, the judge's place to turn all the sad things and make them untrue. That's what I want. I want God to make it new again. I'm sick of it. Good man, loving the Lord, serving. He shouldn't have to die. Young girl in my community group shouldn't have to go through a childhood of continual rape for 18 years of her life. I hate, I hate Babylon. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of the great multitude of heaven crying out. It's the only time in the New Testament this word's used. Hallelujah. Here in chapter 19. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged on her the blood of the servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders pipe in, Amen, Hallelujah! You know, the wrath of God inspires our worship. In Psalm 98, Let the sea roar, let all that fills it, the world, and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, and the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. You can imagine a town or a village that hasn't had a judge in six or seven or eight months. You can imagine a, 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 a woman being cheated, a widow being cheated out of her land, some misdealings in a particular land dispute, an abusive husband abusing a wife, ongoing for months and months and months, and everybody's waiting for the judge to come and make things right. Imagine like in a village, the anticipation and the hope that one day soon the judge will come and set this thing back to order again because everything's in chaos. That's what we're experiencing on a cosmic level right now in our world. And the whole world will cry out. The whole world will celebrate when God finally comes to judge and set the world to rights again. I think hope is listening to the future song and faith is dancing to it in the present. The future song I hear is the song of the angels saying, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Him. Don't do that. Don't embrace the ethic of Babylon. Don't, don't fall for the seduction of the whore. Listen. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast and with, uh, that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the, the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. 
John said, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her, I marveled greatly. And the angel said, don't do that. Don't do that. In his little commentary on Revelation, N.T. Wright says, The eye of faith, not merely of cynicism, recognizes that the goblet is full of urine, dung, and blood. Sorry about the nasty words, but perhaps I should have used even nastier ones. The phrase abominations and the impurities of her fornications doesn't quite catch for most of us the full force of what John is saying. His point is that the outward appearance of the whore is magnificent, but the inner reality is disgusting, a stomach-turning filth. Yet this faithless whore has the devotion of kings. The woman that you saw, the great city that has dominion over all the kings of the earth. I think sometimes when we approach the gospel of Jesus, we miss some essential components of the gospel. A lot of modern gospel presentations boil down to the idea that Jesus saves sinners. That's where most gospel presentations kind of land the plan that Jesus saves sinners. But the gospel is so much more than Jesus saves sinners. It's so much more than that. Uh, The gospel includes the concept of Jesus as Lord. That's at least part of the gospel. A part of the, the good news of Christ's redemption and Christ's judgment in this passage is that Jesus is Lord. In Romans 10, 9, when we make the confession, we confess with our mouth, right? We believe in our heart. What is it we're confessing? It's the Lordship of Jesus. Looking on this particular issue, Scott Knight says in the, in the King Jesus Gospel, he says, I believe that the word gospel has been hijacked by what we believe about personal salvation. And the gospel itself has been reshaped to facilitate making decisions, the result of this hijacking is that the word gospel no longer means in our world what it originally meant to either Jesus or the apostles. Most evangelists today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. The apostles, however, were obsessed with making disciples. J.F. Packer in his book, uh, Affirming the Apostles' Creed, looks at this particular issue and he says, I think I have a, a reason or a rationale for why this, this gospel has been so narrowed to just decisions. He says, of the 20th century, trains and cars came to be streamlined for speed. So the gospel was streamlined for instant comprehension and response. And the question being explored was, how little do we need to tell people for them to become Christians? Was that a good question to work with? In some circles, maybe so, but in most, definitely not, says Packer. You see, to accept the gospels, accept that God reigns. When you hear the, the, the voices of Revelation 19, you hear... And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. It's the reign and rule of God, which is a central part of the gospel. 
In Romans 10, 15, Paul's quoting from Isaiah 52, and he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So when you go to Isaiah 52, 7, this is what you read. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the gospel that you and I hold on to. This is the hope that we dance to. This is the gospel we believe in, that God will rule and reign. And there is a good news solution to the bad news problems of your world. And the good news people, what they do is they publish good news stories with their lives. So do you want to know what your mission is in life? Do you want to know what your mission is? I'm going to give you an easy way of discovering your mission. What would be different if Jesus reigned and ruled here? Ask that question. Ask that question of your dormitory. Ask that question of your neighborhood. Ask that question of your city. Ask that question of your world. What would be different if Jesus reigned and ruled here? And then publish that story with your life. Live now like you'll live then. Embody the prayer of Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Embody that prayer with your life. That's your mission in the world. In our city, we've been asking the question for a very long time. You know, New Mexico is the worst state to be a child. Consistently the worst state to be a child. Every once in a while, Mississippi beats us on that category. God bless Mississippi. All right, 49 to 50, where you were at the bottom of the list. Just recently, funding for education got cut again. All middle school sports programs are cut across the board in Albuquerque. We started a, a, a program called Shine in our local school. Started off with a $20,000 offering that led to a partnership that now is a nonprofit partnering churches and schools for the common good. And that nonprofit now has 15 different schools in partnership. We hope the whole city one day, all elementary schools and many of the middle schools, we partner together in a Shine partnership where a local church will be showing up and giving money. But it, you know, it requires the local church to ask the question how much is enough for us? This year, our church has been able to designate over 30% of our annual budget to serving and caring for the poor in our city. But a lot of, you know, a lot of churches aren't, aren't asking the question. A lot of pastors aren't asking the question, how much is enough? Don't embrace the ethic of Babylon. Don't fall for the seduction of Babylon. Don't worship anything but God. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And... He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. Don't do that. Worship God. So Jesus is a faithful husband who has washed us with grace and has made you beautiful in his grace. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and it, had, and it was granted, listen, granted her to clothe herself with fine linens, God's grace, bright and pure for the fine linen is righteous deeds of the saints. It reminds you of Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, having washed her with the word, presenting her with splendor without spot or wrinkle. 
Piper writes these words, Worship is what the whole book of Revelation is about. That's the point of all God's judgments. All God's dealings with the world, all God's plans for history from beginning to end have this one goal. Worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. And don't even worship the holy messenger who brings you the good news that Babylon has fallen forever. Worship God. The church is an alien outpost in Babylon. And we exist to to reassert God's rightful place wherever it has been prostituted to secular commerce or secular education or secular entertainment or secular media or secular arts or secular sports. All the people of God exiled in Babylon are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit of prophecy. And the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. And that means the Lord of every area of secular life in Babylon. You see, the problem with us is we live in Babylon, and the American dream is just simply this, get more. But I want to tell you, the subtext of the American dream is this, get more because God's not enough. Maybe the Holy Spirit of God needs to tell you and tell me to get out of her, come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Stop longing for more and more of this broken world. Stop stop longing for more and more and more. Start asking the question, how much is enough? Don't embrace the ethic of Babylon, the ethic of more. Don't fall for her seduction, the seduction of the whore. Don't worship anything but God. I have more I want to say, but I'm just going to pray. Father in heaven, it's my hope that you will help us. Through your Holy Spirit, can you loosen just now in our hearts the grip that we have on the things of this world? Would you open our eyes to see those in our neighborhood, those in our hallway, those in our community who have less than enough. Would you help us honor you and worship you with all that you've given us and bless us with to to help those who have less than enough. Wherever the whore has been seducing and drawing us in and calling us to worship at her altar, Would you, Holy Spirit of God, use your words to break that bond that we have to the things of this world? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us how to live our lives in such a way that we listen to the Father's words and obey his voice even to death and that we would love to seek and serve others. Help us to love what you love. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.